All right, as people come back in, we're going to kick things off. And in a moment, we're going to read from God's Word. And I see, like, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. And as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately, it's God speaking to us. Um, but I thought I'd just take a quick sample. I'm not going to get live responses or anything like that. Did anyone, did anyone go for the question, why do we get FOMO? Did anyone go for the question, if we had more wealth, we'd be happier? Did anyone go for the question, are dating apps good or bad? Okay. Oh, wow, all right. Okay, everyone went for that one. Well, here's why I asked those questions. Those are three questions that I imagine, if you ask just pretty much anyone in Sydney, they'd probably have some kind of opinion on it. And the reason for it is there are probably three things that we imagine, if there really isn't a God, that life might be about. It either might be about just having a good time, but the tricky thing is that the more you believe that life is about a good time, the more anxious you become that I might be missing out on having a good time, that someone else might be having a better time, or even if I am having a good time, it could be even better than it is. The second one is that people believe like, well, maybe if life's not about having a good time, you've actually got to grow up at some point. Maybe it's about making money or landing a career or doing something significant. But again, we know that the more successful you are doesn't guarantee that you'll actually be happy or tap real meaning in life. And oftentimes, the more successful you become, the more stressed you are that you need to do it again and again and again. And success becomes increasingly elusive. And so the third one is then, well, maybe if life's not about having a good time or just making money or having a career, maybe it's about finding the one. And often it's the case, and maybe you got to this with this question, but sometimes, sometimes dating apps are towards that end. But sometimes they prey upon the fact that they know that people really believe that life is about finding the one. And so their apps are set up to exploit that fact. The problem is that a lot of apps make money by having repeat customers. And so even if they know that their app's not working for you or actually helping you, it doesn't matter because to make money they need repeat customers. And so oftentimes it preys upon the vulnerability that we believe that maybe life is about just finding that one person that will make everything make sense. But the truth is that the gospel has real answers to these questions. And so over three weeks after this series, we finish Acts next week. And after that, we're, we're spending three weeks looking at these three questions. Is there more to life than a good time? Is there more to life than wealth? And is there more to life than finding the one? And we're going to see from three stories that Jesus told that there is an answer that we are looking for at the bottom of those questions that can only be found in Christ. And so our hope is that, uh, that over that time, as we bring along friends and family, they will engage with the gospel for the first time as we see that actually Jesus has the answers to the questions that we're really asking. And so to that end, we also have uh, something else coming up. At the end of that series, we're running our next Alpha for the year. And if you were there for the first one, you'll know it was a cracking time and such a good time to engage with the gospel and to see so many people come along and hear about the gospel for the first time. And so what we're doing is next Monday night, we're running a preview night. If you've never come to an Alpha or never brought anyone to an Alpha, here's your chance to experience what that would actually be like. So on Monday night at 7 p.m. on the 9th of October, we're going to be gathering together to go through the first night of Alpha as a preview night. So this is just for people who are part of the church who want to check it out and be like, what's this thing about before I invite my friends along? And if you've never done it before, this is a great step forward in doing that. So mark that down in your diaries, October 9th. But right now, we're going to dive into the text this morning from Acts 27 the second last chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up this story partway through where Paul is traveling and is traveling by boat when things start to go wrong. And we're going to start from sentence 9 in chapter 27 and the reading will come up on the screen for you as well. Acts 27, 9. 
much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. And so Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, and so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make a lifeboat secure, and so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. So they lowered anchor and let the ship be driven along. When we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is the word of God. Hey, everyone. Great to be with you and to be in yeah, the second last week of Acts. It's been a, a long road over this year getting through the book of Acts, but one that's been really encouraging as we've just been able to, I guess, camp out in these texts where we get to see this guy, Paul, uh, under the lordship of Jesus, go through these situations that are like something out of like a, a blockbuster movie, like this shipwreck that we're looking at here. Um, we're going to be jumping into this story if you do have a Bible um, and you want to keep it open to Acts 27, that would be great. We're going to be going through what Jez just read and a little bit more. Um, it will be coming up on the screen as we go as well. But I just thought we'd just start our time by praying just that as we get into God's Word now on this, um, on this long weekend, where hopefully you're already feeling a bit of like rest, having the knowledge you're not going back to work tomorrow, and we can just kind of stop for a little bit and just actually soak ourselves in God's words and be encouraged uh, and formed into the likeness of Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can be together, that you've brought us each here today, and that you've got something that you want to say to each and every one of us. There are things you want to remind us of. There are things you want us to see for the first time. There are things you simply want us to be encouraged by. And we just ask that you would not have anything stand in the way of that happening this morning, that we would just be able to, to look and to listen and to hear you uh, as, we, as we study this text together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, nothing makes me more anxious than being in a situation where I've got absolutely no control. I'm a bit of a control freak, but I think the time when this has been, I guess, most acutely profound for me has been at the birth of each of my two children. Uh, my, most, my most recent child was only born six weeks ago, so this is a very fresh memory for me. And I thought I would do better the second time, but I didn't. I was an anxious mess. And I'm sure that some of the dads here can relate. Like, have you ever felt more useless in your entire life? When you're in the delivery ward, your wife's got various things to keep her busy. She's got enough on her plate over there. You've got doctors, midwives, nurses running around. They know what they're doing. They've got things to type on computers, things to check with their various instruments. They've got, they know what's happening. And then for you, for, for hours potentially on end, you're just standing there kind of stupidly offering the, the feeblest attempts of help by saying things like, can I get you a glass of water? Or, well done, keep breathing as if that's kind of contributing anything to the whole fact. But I found it really stressful knowing that I was in a situation where the stakes were high, it was an important, it was a big moment of my life, but I was really bringing nothing to the table. I had no control over the outcome, and I found that really, really stressful. To the point where I'm almost embarrassed to say, there was a couple of times at each of the births where the midwives had to turn to me and say, look, do you just need to go sit down for a minute? Because I was just like pacing around the room and just not knowing what was going on. But in these stressful moments, the, the, what, the thing that I guess at least helped me keep it partially together was the calm I could look to in the midwives and nurses. Because what was for me uh, this terrifying, once-in-a-lifetime stressful moment was for them just another day at the office. It's business as usual, and they would just calmly and surely go about their work. And that was a calming presence. They were in that instance what the leadership consultant, therapist and author Edwin Friedman describes as a non-anxious presence. Edwin Friedman was an author who wrote a lot about um, family systems and, and also business and, and, and that kind of thing. And one of his ideas was that when you've got a system that is chaotic or in a state of anxiety, whether that's a nation or a business or a family, the most powerful healing and redemptive force that can enter that system is a non-anxious presence. That is a person or a few people who don't capitulate to the anxiety that is around them, but rather can calmly and with authority steer the system forward. I think this is an idea which is really important for the age that we are living in. We live in an anxious age. The World Health Organization says that the prevalence of anxiety has increased 25% since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reports that one in six Australians are at some point affected by an anxiety disorder. And those stats are just speaking about anxiety in the clinical sense. If you broaden it to its more just kind of everyday use sense of just talking about anxious and anxiety in the way that, that all people experience it from time to time, it's even more common. In, in a study that was done last year, 27% of baby boomers described feeling extremely uncertain about their future. So that's 27% for, for the, one of the older generations. But for Gen Z, it was 51% and millennials, it was 47% of people saying they feel extremely uncertain about their future. In the same study, people were given a list of words to describe how they felt when thinking about their future. They were given options like excited, overwhelmed, anxious, hopeful, unprepared, and, and a bunch more. And anxious was overwhelmingly the most common answer picked. Anxiety is everywhere. And it's not that surprising for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is kind of the most obvious one is the dominant narrative that we hear in our world today is one that is anxiety-provoking. 
It's even changed in the last 20 years or so. I think, you know, 20 years ago, one of the dominant messaging towards young people was, you're amazing, you're great, you're special, you're one of a kind, and you can do anything. You can change the world. Now, that was a, that was a problematic sense, you know, set of messages in some ways, because it brings with it, and many of you can maybe relate, hitting the point where you inevitably realize that you aren't necessarily exceptional. You're average, probably. That's the definition of average. And there are lots of things in the world that you can't actually do. But at least that messaging gave some sense of hopefulness about the future. But you compare that to the dominant messaging of today that young people get, which is that they are fragile, that they are a victim of all kinds of forces beyond their control, and that fundamentally the world is ruined and it's not getting any better. That's a set of messages that makes you feel anxious. And I feel like I don't need to labor this point because I'm sure you guys see this, maybe in yourselves, maybe in your family, maybe in your friends, maybe in your workplaces. We live in an anxious world, which raises the question, could the church be a non-anxious presence? Could we be a beacon of calm and peace and hope in an anxious age? Like Jez alluded to, I think in this passage that we're looking at where we see in this very specific story about the Apostle Paul on a ship in a storm, we see a pathway and a picture of what it looks like to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious age, even in the midst of terrible suffering and chaos. If you are just joining us for the first time this morning, just to get you up to speed in where we are in the book of Acts, we are near the end. Paul, who has been going from town to town, city to city, preaching about Jesus, has recently been arrested. He had gone to Jerusalem to bring a gift to the church that was there, which is this nice kind of turnaround from at the beginning of Acts where Paul was persecuting Christians. Now he's bringing them a gift. He gets arrested and is accused of starting a revolt against Rome because of his claim that Jesus is king over and above Caesar. Paul doesn't believe, though, he'll get a fair trial in Jerusalem because there are so many against him, and so he appeals to go and have his case heard by Caesar in Rome. And there's this interesting section in the book of Acts where there's a bit of a parallel to Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of Jesus, where it slows down at the end to focus on Jesus' trial and his suffering. And now at the end of Acts, we're focusing on Paul's trial and his suffering. And we see in this passage we're looking at today, Paul in the midst of suffering and chaos, yet emitting a sense of peace and calm. And so I wanted to point out from this passage three things that Paul has that enable him to face suffering, chaos, and anxiety with a sense of calm and peace. Three things that he has that I think we would do well to grasp hold of in our own lives. Firstly, that he has an expectation of hardship. Secondly, that he has a trust in God's sovereignty. And third, a contagious hope. So we'll go through those one at a time. Firstly, an expectation of hardship. The first thing we see when we look at this passage, and you see this really through the whole life of Paul through the book of Acts, is that he is someone who is not surprised when he comes up against difficulties or suffering. If you've been with us throughout this series, you'll see time and time again Paul getting insulted, persecuted, arrested, beaten, tortured, imprisoned. He's had it tough, and you, you maybe think, look, he's had, a, he's had a rough run, can it get any worse? And then you get this entire chapter about just being in this miserable, awful storm. The section we're looking at starts with Paul, who's a prisoner on a ship. 
He'd been arrested and a centurion, Julius, and his soldiers were responsible for transporting Paul and a cohort of other prisoners to Rome. And not having their own ship, the way they're getting to Rome is they're kind of tagging along on various merchant vessels along the way throughout the Mediterranean. And where we get to today, due to some bad weather, the ship is already behind schedule, which creates a dilemma for the crew and and the centurion in charge. Should they sail forward, knowing that it's typically not a good season to be sailing because of the storms that that happen, or should they wait? And it's into this that Paul speaks up in verse 9. He says, Much of the time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was the day after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. So Paul speaks up. He's a prisoner. He doesn't actually have any authority, but he says it anyway. He says, if we go ahead with this, there is going to be suffering and there is going to be hardship. And this isn't Paul just being kind of pessimistic or glass half empty or trying to get out of going to Rome. He's a guy who's seasoned in ship travel. In one of his letters to the Corinthians, he claims to have been shipwrecked three times. So that probably means that two before this, because he gets, he's on his way to Rome here. He also says he spent at one point a full 24 hours floating in sea, maybe after falling off a boat before he was rescued. And he says this is not the season to be sailing. To go forward is to walk into a disaster. And he's ignored. But it's interesting to see what Paul doesn't say here. What he doesn't say is, I am God's chosen apostle. I'm on my way to Rome, and no matter what happens, the clouds will part from me and will make, make, make an easy way forward that no danger can come on this ship because I am a disciple of Jesus. Paul is aware that trouble, or in his words, disaster, can and does strike. And when when they go on this voyage on this boat, he is aware of what is coming. He knows that there are hard days ahead of him. I think there can be times as Christians, even if we don't articulate it as such, where we can kind of feel that somehow following Jesus will grant us some immunity to trouble in our lives. That we know that, yeah, objectively, there's all kinds of horrible things out there. People get diseases, they lose homes, they lose jobs, they have bouts of deep depression, they suffer abuse, but surely God would spare me all of that. That somehow there's a bit of an awe around us the moment we become a Christian that will will save us from at least the worst of suffering. It's not just that Christian idea, though. I think even our secular worldview trains us to avoid thinking about the possibility of suffering coming our way. And we do that through distraction and diversion. We try to create distance from ourselves to the possibilities of of hard things befalling us to somehow even trick ourselves that maybe we'll be able just to live, if we do everything right, we can just live comfortably forever. And this is often what is so disorienting when things go wrong, when hardships come, when troubles come, when suffering happens. Whether it's through some theology that has led you to believe that God wouldn't have you feel any pain, or simply from gluing your eyes to your phone and distracting yourself from that possibility, that when suffering hits, it brings with it not just the pain that is inherent to that particular suffering, but also the shocking surprise that life hasn't turned out how we thought it would 
or that God hasn't done for us what we expected him to. But Paul knows he's not immune from suffering. On the contrary, he knows there is actually suffering tied up in his calling. If you remember way back in Acts chapter 9, when, when you see the story of Paul's conversion, and there's this guy, Ananias, who is just really surprised that God is going to use Paul, who had been killing Christians, to take the gospel forward. God says to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The road that Paul was called on was one that was marked with unavoidable suffering. And he had a unique calling as an apostle, and, and, and you know, we aren't the same as him in every respect. But for all followers of Jesus, there is hardship with that journey. Peter, one of the other apostles, writes to some suffering Christians in 1 Peter 4.12, and he says to them, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's reminding us that we shouldn't be surprised when life gets hard. He doesn't say to enjoy it. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. He just says don't be surprised by it. That hardship is normal. It's not good. It's not pleasant. But in a broken and sinful world, still reeling with the effects of evil upon it, it is normal. So when the storm breaks on this voyage and the rain starts falling and the wind starts rising and everyone else starts freaking out, Paul is ready. He knows it's coming. He's prepared. So that's the first thing that Paul has. He has an expectation of hardship. The second thing we see, though, is he has a trust in God's sovereignty. Despite believing that suffering happens and that it is an inevitable part of his journey, Paul does not take that to mean that when suffering comes that God has lost control. No, Paul sees God as being in control even in the midst of the hard things that happen. We'll read on in the next section in verse 21. It says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now you've got to keep in mind that when Paul is saying this and, and experiencing this, it is in the midst of, of weeks of just horrible, hard-to-fathom experience on, the, on this boat at sea. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in a storm. I've certainly never been on anything anywhere like what Paul's going through. Um, it's hard to kind of imagine, but there was one time I was on a boat in a storm. It was when I was a kid. Uh, I, was in, I was like 12 years old. I was in Indonesia visiting some family friends who actually hear Jenny and Anthony. I didn't expect to have fact checkers in the room. Um, but we'd been on this island snorkeling and the like, and we're heading back towards the land on this kind of tinny when this storm just kind of came out of nowhere. It came over the horizon. Everything got choppy. The wind started blowing. And I just noticed that all of us were holding onto the boat a little bit more tightly as the rain started to fall. It was an unpleasant experience. I was feeling a bit nervous being just a kid at the time when my dad all of a sudden said, let's say a prayer. And that was maybe meant to calm us all down, but our family wasn't that holy that we just randomly prayed on public transport. And so I was like, 
Now, this isn't a good sign. If Dad's saying we need to pray, this is a, this is a we're going to sink sort of thing. But it was stressful. That was an ordeal that lasted about 40 minutes, maybe tops. Paul's talking about being on a ship days of just feeling like you're going to die. Everyone panicking, unable to sleep. It's just absolutely terrifying. It's a horrible experience. It's not pleasant or comfortable in any way, shape, or form. And yet Paul holds on to the reality that God is in control even of that. I wonder if you've been in a situation, maybe not in a storm, where, but you've just felt like you're in something that just feels like the bleakness does not end, the darkness does not lift, the, the turmoil and the chaos just keeps coming. And every time you think it's going to get better, it just continues. That is a hard time to remember that God is in control, and that is what Paul does. He experiences this angel coming and reminding him of what he already has been told, that he is going to take the gospel to the, to the nations, to the world, and to Rome. And he's reminded that nothing is going to come in the way of that. That God's purposes will stand, even in the midst of this seemingly hard to understand how God's going to work this through, this storm that looks like it's going to end in death, God is still in control. He won't be stopped. Paul's got a large view of God's sovereignty. That is that the God who created this universe maintains complete control over his universe. There is no power that is greater. There is nothing that can stop him or thwart him. And that hardship is not a sign that God has lost control. It does not mean that chaos or evil or chance or anything else has got the upper hand. And in many ways, it's a difficult doctrine to hold on to. I think one of the most common, I guess, objections to the things that we find hard about that idea is that it seems incompatible with other seemingly self-evident ideas such as that our decisions have consequences, that we have agency, that we can make decisions that affect the course of our life. But it's just really interesting from this passage, one of the things that just stood out to me in reading it is that Paul can at the same time hold on to God being sovereign, God being in control, and still seeing his decisions and his choices as mattering. Look at the very next section in verse 27 and how he holds these in tension. Verse 27 says, When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So there's this interesting little kind of mind-bending thing going on here. Some of the sailors on the boats, remember on the boat there's not just sailors, there's the prisoners, there's the soldiers, it's all happening. Some of the sailors say, look, we've had enough of this. We've got a boat, it can't fit everyone, but it can fit us. Let's sneak off and we'll, at least we'll be saved. And Paul sees this happening and he calls the soldiers over and he says to them, if these sailors leave the boat, we are all stuffed. That's kind of logical, right? We need the sailors to have any chance of survival. But that's interesting given that only a few verses before, Paul has said there will be no loss of life. God is in control. And now he says, if they go, we're doomed. So which is it? Has God decided the outcome? Or does the decision of these sailors matter? God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Paul holds on to both. Which I think is the right way to hold on to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. 
It isn't an idea or a belief about God that leads you just to be passive and to sit back. If you hold on to God's control at the expense of human responsibility, the logical thing is just to be passive. It's just to sit back and be like, look, nothing I do really matters. I'll just sit back and God's got it right at the end of the day. I won't worry about kind of trying to right any of the, the wrongs in the world. I won't personally engage in, in God's mission of telling people about Jesus because he's got it under control. I won't bother discipling my children to, to know Jesus or make an effort even in my own life to be more like Jesus myself and fight against that sin because God has it all under control. To hold on to God's sovereignty at the expense of human responsibility leads you to passivity. But on the flip side, if you lose God's sovereignty, it leads you to a place of panic. Because if it is all up to you to right all the world's wrongs, to make sure you yourself find an opportunity to tell all 8 billion people on this planet about Jesus, to make sure by your expert parenting that your kids turn out perfect, to remove all of those sins and addictions that are holding onto you from your own strength, that leads you to a place of panic. If it is all up to you, these are things you cannot do on your own. But Paul holds on to both. And you see what happens when you hold those two things together. You end up with Paul being calm, in control, clear-minded, able to, to engage specifically in what needs to be done for God's purposes to be carried out. It is a hard tension to hold, but Paul believes that God is in control, and this actually enables him to act with calmness, cool, and clarity. Because he believes God is in control. And more than that, he believes that God is good. Because it's all well and good to have a God who is in control, but if that God is, un- is just callous and uncaring, like a-, a kid with a magnifying glass kind of sitting over the world enjoying people suffer, that's not good news. But Paul knows that God's control, his sovereign purpose in the world, is for the good of those who love him. In Romans chapter 8, where this idea is spelled out by Paul in a letter to the church in Rome, it just says it so clearly in verse 28 when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is this reality that underpins Paul's experience of hardship. That all things are worked by God in his control for good. And he means all things. Even a few verses later, he he goes into some detail. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He really means all things. Injustice, pain, hunger, persecution, need, attack. All things work together for the good of those who love God. This is a reality that we need to, to desperately hold on to, like you would hold on to a, like a life ring in the ocean when we encounter our times of trouble and hardship. Because this truth is the key to understanding God's work through the entire scope of human history. You see it come up again and again in the Bible when you see disobedience or sin or evil present, seemingly sidetracking what God is trying to do in the world. But time and time again, God uses that for good. I wanted to give you some examples, but I, I won't for time's sake. But I think the place that it plays out most fully is in the story of Jesus. That at the point of human history of the greatest evil, the, the killing 
of the Son of God, the pure blameless one, the only innocent person to have ever lived, his unfair, unjust betrayal and death, that that moment of greatest evil, where things seemed most out of control for everyone who was watching, such as his disciples who loved him, that that moment was for the greatest good, the salvation of humanity. Paul has a deep, weighty confidence that his situation, his arrest, his imprisonment, this storm, will ultimately end for good. We desperately need to hold on to that reality when, we, when it feels like life is out of control, when we feel prone to worry. And it's hard to hold on to. Please don't hear me saying like that's just like an easy little pill to swallow and then everything's going to be okay and easy. Because that doesn't make suffering stop feeling like suffering. Nor does it mean you always get to see the outcome. You don't get this clearest day picture necessarily of how exactly your particular circumstance is going to be for your particular good. Maybe one time out of ten, God working things for good means, you know, you lose your job, you're sad for a few days, but then you find an even better job and it's happy days. And you can say, oh yeah, God worked that for good. But, but nine times out of ten... It's a year's past, two years past, 10 years, 40 years. And you look at this thing that's happened and you say, look, I still can't see why that happened or why God had it happen that way or at that time. But the promise stands that all things will bend towards good. And the call is to trust in that promise. That is an antidote to the anxiety of our age to know that there are a lot of things that, out of, that are out of our control, but there's nothing that is out of God's control. Paul trusts in the sovereignty of God, which leads to the third thing that he has that, that leads to make him a non-anxious presence, which is a contagious hope. On this boat, every other person is hopeless. They've just they're resigned to the fact that they're not going to make it. The boat's going to sink. They're going to die. To the point where they've even just stopped bothering to feed themselves. On the boat, there's a centurion. That's a, a Roman soldier, leader of 100 men. There's the captain of a boat, presumably, who's got the sailors following him and has been doing this for years. You've got sailors who know the ropes, who know the ocean. And you would think that someone out of this lot of people would be able to rise to the occasion, rally the boat, raise morale, and keep people on the right track. But the person who does this is one of the prisoners. It's Paul. Look at verse 33. It says, As the day was about to dawn... Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Now, there's a lot to unpack just in these verses. Paul clearly here has a hope that no one else has. There is something different about him. He's got an intimate relationship with the God who controls all things, and he has been given a clear word that everything is going to be okay. A direct assurance that things will work out for good. So he, he has something that everyone else around him does not have in that. His circumstances are the same though. He faces the same rocking of the boat, the same sleepless nights, the seasickness, the cold rain blowing against his face, the shivering. But he knows that these things will pass. 
And that enables him to be the voice of reason and to create around himself a space of calm where others can find refuge in the chaos of the storm. To be the desperately needed calm voice that reminds people that in God's presence they can stop, they can rest, and they can be nourished. I think these verses just demonstrate so clearly the power of a non-anxious presence. That, that influence, that, that even leadership, isn't simply tied to necessarily a position or a title, but to, to character. That Paul, who's a prisoner in this circumstance, he's the centre of our story, because we're reading the book of Acts, but for everyone else on, on this boat, he's a nobody. He's just some guy that they're transporting for a trial who becomes the most influential person on the boat. Mark says in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, uses the example that if you're in a room and you've, you know, let's say you've bought tickets to go and hear some famous lecturer speak on some topic and you're in an auditorium and it's filled up and some guy's on the stage speaking for, for hours and hours and hours, when all of a sudden a fire alarm goes off People start looking around and they go to the back door and start kind of trying to open it and it's locked and, and panic starts breaking out. And then just some, someone stands up. There's a woman to the side, somewhere from just on the side of the room and says, hey, everyone, just calm down, calm down. Over there, just by the other way, there is another exit. We're all going to get out. We're all going to be fine. Who is the person with most influence in that room? It's not who you'd assume necessarily, the person that everyone has gone and paid to see and, and hear speak, the person with the position of the authority, but it's the person who rises to the occasion and is able to direct people in a calm manner. That's what Paul is able to do here. And it is something that is desperately needed. People are hungry for someone who can help them navigate the desperate anxiety of our age. To the point where having peace is like finding an oasis in the middle of a desert. The latent stress of the world that we live in, the inevitable hopelessness of the pervading secular worldview that offers no hope, no final happy outcome for our lives and world, no true deep meaning, just nothingness, nothingness and purposelessness. In a world of constantly being told every time you go on your phone or turn on the news that things are getting worse, that we are on the brink of some disaster, that you will die eventually in some of a thousand different ways, and then after that, there is nothing that you only live once. And in this life that you do only live once, you're a victim of a million different things. In that world, people are hungry for someone who can actually say to them, not in a glib, false way, but in a real, deep, meaningful way, it is going to be okay. The world is in need of people of a calm assurance. And it's actually one of the greatest things that the church and us as Christians have to offer this world. Because we face the same troubles as this world, just like Paul is in the same storm as those in the boat. But like Paul, we've been given a clear vision of the outcome. That everything is going to be okay, that God works all things for the good of those who love him, that Jesus is going to return and then we're going to live for eternity with no suffering, no crying and no pain. That enables us to be different from the, to those around us. In fact, it's the chaos that actually enables that reality to shine. I'm sure that Paul's ideal voyage wasn't to be in a storm for over two weeks. I'm sure he would have preferred to share the gospel, sitting on crystal clear Mediterranean seas, munching on olives and feta and flatbread, maybe some freshly caught salmon en route to Italy. But if it wasn't for this storm, would anyone have listened? Would he have been given a voice? 
It's the storm that displays what Paul has that no one else has. It's what drives people to him to the point where he can... He's on trial for sharing the gospel and, and challenging Caesar. Now the centurions are letting him do that in their presence. That's often the case. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, was traveling in the 1700s from England to America when a storm struck his ship, funnily enough. And at that point, he didn't have a a particularly deep or close relationship with God. And and the panic started to rise on the boat as this storm happened. And he wrote in his diary what happened. He says, The sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. These Germans he's speaking of are from a particular branch of the church that had just a real deep, close relationship with God. And he realizes in that moment, when faced with the prospect of his own death, that they have a depth of their relationship with God that gives them a peace that he did not have. When everyone is worried about death, those who are secure in their life are noticeable and they're compelling. In our world today, as people anxiously hurry around looking for comfort and wealth and meaning and pleasure and everything else, Having a person who is not worried for these things is a powerful presence. To possess a hope is a powerful thing. And this is the hope that we have to offer the world as Christians. That whatever troubles and trials may come, we know the outcome. That God is not done with this world, that he is continuing to work, that he is alive and he is with us. So that we can be a non-anxious presence to this world. We can be the ones who are set apart. That is our calling as the church. But that starts with actually being grounded in a place of peace ourselves, doesn't it? Because being a person like this, or, or doing what Paul did in, in, his, in his story, or being the ship, that's easier said than done, right? Unfortunately, anxiety, feeling anxious and worried, isn't like a switch you can just flick on and off. Like, how good would that be if you could just, like, decide to not worry and then you stopped worrying? Like, that's... But, Anyone who's, have you ever worried about anything before? Anyone who's worried about anything knows that this isn't how it works, is it? It takes work and time to train yourself to not be anxious and not to capitulate to, to the voices of anxiety around us. It can be hard. Especially if it's like, if we're talking like, if your situation is like a clinical anxiety, it, it takes deep work and professional work even to help move through that. But often, often worry isn't something we can just control in a minute. It does take deep work. And as the church, we need to be committed to this, of being shaped to be a non-anxious presence. And I think ultimately the place that that work happens, or where we have that transformation take place, is in the time we spend with Jesus. Paul's hope in this storm is based on, on a set of convictions he's taken some time to build up that he deeply does believe that God is in control, that he has that assurance. He has that intimate closeness with God in the midst of hardship. We too need to be built on these foundational truths. 
And it can feel like a little bit of a lazy way to end a sermon, just to be like, okay, so now go home, read your Bible more. Like that, I'm aware of that. But how else are you going to cultivate a deeper trust, a deeper peace, and clarity of vision and depth of hope, unless you are hearing a narrative that is different? Unless you are knowing and walking with and speaking to and hearing from the God of this universe? Because we, before we can be a non-anxious presence to others, we need to have our own anxieties quietened. We're not immune from the troubles and worries of this world. I'm sure you come in today with some, with some worries. We all, we all have worries, or maybe they're really suppressed and like pushed down nice and deep in there somewhere. But we need to be people who are able to lay these before God. Paul says elsewhere that we're not to be anxious but to lay our requests before God. There is something tied up with being non-anxious and being able to, to just to tell God what we're feeling and what is going on. To actually have time with Jesus where, where you can say, hey, I've just today I've woken up and I'm worried about this, 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 and this, and just to lay that before God. But then also to fill our minds with his words and his promises. To be able to read just the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels where he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. You're valuable. You're my brother. You're my sister. I'm with you. You can't add to your life by worry, but you are valuable and you are my beloved. Or to spend time soaking in the words of Romans 8, which I read a little bit of before, where, where it says that God works for all, th- all things for the good of those who love him. Or to read the Psalms of God being a rock and a fortress. Or, or to sit in the words of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These are the truths that when built into our life, fear us from the anxiety of our age. We need to rest in them and to find time to sit in them and to be shaped by them. We need to find time to do this. And I get it, it's hard to find time. Life is busy. If only the government would, would kind of make this thing where every single person had to take an extra day off for a week and we could have some time to, to do it. So I think so. Here's, here's what my challenge is going to be. Most of you don't have work tomorrow. And so this is an invitation. You can do this if you'd want to do it, but um, I'll be doing it. Which is just to take, take some time, maybe set aside an hour, and to spend some time sitting in some of the parts of the Bible that will shape you to be a non-anxious presence. I can give you three places to go to if you want a suggestion, and you can write these down if you want. Psalm 23, Romans 8, I've mentioned both of those today, and just Luke chapter 12, the middle section, your Bible will have a subheading, do not worry, somewhere in the middle of Luke, Luke chapter 12. And to read those sections and just spend some time with God, letting those words wash over you, and just speaking to him and actually searching your heart for what are your worries at the moment, what is troubling you, and to lay those before God. That we might be shaped over this weekend, and that that would be a practice that is ongoing, to be able to go back to our workplaces, our families, our friends, and to be different, to be a beacon of hope and of light and of rest in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you've given us the resources that we need and the realities that we need to know in order to be, to be non-anxious. And we do know that there will be many things that will cause us to worry and we will not be perfect. We are not perfect. And, and it ultimately doesn't depend on our perfection, which is the good news. But Lord, we just pray that for our, our sake and our benefit, that we might enjoy your peace and, and, and the reality of your love, that we would be more and more made into people who are able to cling to these realities, that you are there, that you are good, and that you are working, and that your purposes will not be stopped.
And Lord, for this city that our heart breaks for, as we look around and just see the, just the depth of anxiety and worry, the hopelessness that has gripped this world, the sense that people have that there is nothing that can happen or change that will make things okay. We just pray that we would be people who are open with what we have found and what we know, that we would be able to bring that with us into the situations that we enter, that even if we're not managers in our works or we're not the boss, we're not necessarily the, the, the loudest or the extrovert, that we would have a presence that is noticeable. The people will be able to look at us and say that there is something that we have that they desperately need. And you might give us opportunities to point them to you, the author of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.